Welcome to We're Not Wizards. We are the best, but not wizards. Enjoy the show! Episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for it's spooky season, supposedly spooky, terrifying. It's getting dark. However, it's bright sunshine here. I don't know what's going on with that. Absolutely blazing sunshine. I'm out there kind of cutting the grass and doing all these things I would normally do in kind of like March, April time with the sun. I don't know if you could see me right now. The sun is streaming through the background, you know. Today, we have somebody rather special. You have kind of, (laughs) what is it? You have certain scalps in the board game design community that you would like to claim. And this person's, uh, one of their games sits on my shelf, staring at me constantly because it's a reasonable size game. So we are going to go on a bit of, I was going to say a whistle stop tour, but it's maybe like a whistle mountain tour. I'm not going to maybe repeat myself, might replicate it. I don't know. I have no idea. It's not because we're talking about big projects. It's not even we're talking about something like a Manhattan project, but we're going to make you laugh. We might make you cry. Oh, I don't know. Because I'm talking to a man who started off from reasonable sized dwellings, who's now at the edge of space itself, almost at the Andromeda's edge. I've got rather wonderful, rather fantastic Mr. Luke Laurie. Hello there, sir. Good morning. Um, that was an impressive uh, connection of uh, those game titles, and thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. Um, I I first came aware of yourself with, um, well, it was two games. The first one was uh, Whistle Mountain, and then the second one was the... It was kind of like, it was more like an experience than just a box. It was like the dwellings of, of Elderville. Um, but you've been steadily, it looks like you've been kind of like steadily designing for well over kind of eight or nine years. I'm guessing that you've probably been designing for an awful lot, awful lot kind of longer, longer than that. Um, but what we like to do on the show is we like to have, I guess, a little kind of look back at the past before we have, we dwell on the present and we look on to the kind of the the edgy future. Um, are you are you full time in the business now? Is this your kind of job job? Are you still kind of working on a kind of a day job at the moment? I do. I have a I have a very significant career in that uh, I have been a junior high science and pre engineering teacher for twenty six years. Um. Yeah, so very still committed to the day job, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm on my way out. I'm on the uh, the <laughs> steep downhill slope towards the end of my career. Um, yeah, game design game design does take a ton of time. Yeah, and um, I know that I probably could uh, put out a lot more games uh, were I you know exclusively doing that, but. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I've got to make it to the end. I'm going to, I'm going to go until I'm at least uh, 30 years as a teacher. And uh, then we'll see what happens there. I may end up going full time in the industry at that point. There's always, and what I hear about the, the board game industry is that you can be creating very, very successful games um, as long as you're quite happy to live on kind of like ramen noodles and <laughs> kind of Worcester sauce for the rest of your life. <laughs> that I'm very, very aware that like guys are like, yeah, we just sold our, <clears throat> sold our 15,000th game. Where are we going tonight? Um, well, I was thinking we could maybe get the large fries at McDonald's instead <laughs> of the normal kind of, kind of kind of medium one. It is a little like that. Um, and it, it is fascinating because um, to make it uh, as, you know, a full-time and very successful designer mm-hmm. or, you know, designer, developer, someone in the industry, um, there's a tendency for people to wear multiple hats. Like yeah. they go into development, they do... Uh, contract work or they work as some kind of representative for a publishing company or Mm. printer. Um, For myself, I exclusively sliced off design. And while I participate in the development of my games, I have no intention of taking on other roles in the industry. I only want to design. Similarly with being a teacher, I have no aspirations to be an administrator of any kind. I'm I'm a teacher. That's my role. I'm sticking with it. Um, you know, these are these are the things that uh, I enjoy the most. Yeah. And uh, it's where I've devoted all my attention at honing my craft. So that's what what I'll continue with. In terms of, I guess, it, as you move through the kind of the teaching profession, I guess they kind of the dangle the the kind of head of department kind of carrot at you, or you get kind of like. Um, principal and deputy principal and stuff like that so but there are some people that once they get into that role they become pretty disillusioned with the whole teaching thing because they move from actually here I've got some information for you kids and putting that information from their mind into their kids minds to I've got to balance up the kind of the budget for the entire department instead and I think people can end up kind of like be being kind of deal a bit disillusioned with that so is that is that why you're kind of like seem to be and practically want to be involved in the education thing as an educator, as opposed well, to moving up the the, the ladder? No, I actually have taken on a lot of those roles um, right, as okay. an educator, including yeah. uh, I, I've been I was a department chair for my science department for something like fifteen years. Wow. Okay. Um, I had. When I launched into the career, I dove into it, you know, completely because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you mentioned like surviving on ramen noodles. Um, yeah. And in, in my neighborhood, it's Maruchan, um, which is uh, <laughs> okay. which is which is the brand. And it's it's uh, it's the primary uh, way it's referred to in uh, in Mexican Mexican-American culture. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. Surviving on Maruchan noodles is also something that young teachers do as well. So I dove into the teaching career, um, working very hard to do extra um, d- curriculum development projects, getting involved in working with the university outreach programs, grant writing. Um, and that kind of elevated my career very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, I ran like four or five different extracurricular programs and sat on four or five different um, committees relating to policy and curriculum development and so on. 
And then uh, in 2000, a, a lot of what I was doing was chasing accolades and yeah. chasing, uh, you know, additional compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in uh, 2006, 2007, I was named um, Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow. Wow. And I worked in Washington, D.C. for a year on public policy and science and education. Um, after that, it was it was kind of, I don't know, it wasn't exactly peaking out, uh, but I I reached that um, that level of being um, a highly regarded educator pretty early mm-hmm. after that. I wanted more just to focus on the classroom. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I I gradually dialed things back to what I thought were kind of the more nuts and bolts of how do I how do I reach students the best? What are the mm-hmm. best teaching practices? And a lot of what I was doing was um, involved robotics and bringing um, engineering outreach programs into my schools. But uh, more time went by. And uh, I had passed being a teacher for 20 years and I started um, cutting out even more of those things. So now now it's just the classroom. Wow. And then at the end of the day, I, I walk away. Yeah. I don't run any extra clubs. I don't yeah. sit on committees. I don't try to run programs or write grants because I tell myself I, I've done enough in that, in that area. When you were growing up and you're making those kind of career decisions, was teaching always the thing that you kind of wanted to do? No. Um, in fact, uh, it was always there as one of the possibilities, mm-hmm. but uh, different things I was interested in absolutely included games because I, I was always writing Dungeons and Dragons adventures and things like yeah, yeah. that. And um, writing itself, I thought might be a possible path. And I didn't realize that eventually, yes, I would get things published as a writer related to education and related to game design. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, of course, uh, I was one of the founding members of the League of Game Makers, and we wrote blog posts about game design, development, um, publishing for several years back when blogs were the thing to, to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, but uh, other career interests included things like uh I thought I might go into business. I worked in a restaurant. I thought I might want to do cooking or work in restaurants or work in service industry. And uh, yeah, I painted cars for a while. I've done all kinds of things. But uh, yeah, it was teaching was the thing where I felt like I could pursue almost any academic pursuit or hobby. Yeah. And there would be a connection in some way to my job because uh-huh. every bit of knowledge and every skill that you have becomes another way of connecting with students and something you can you can impart. And and I found that to be true. It was great. I uh, I've been able over the years to take the things that I was really interested in Legos, building robots, yeah. um, the fun stuff and make that part of uh, what I did as a teacher. Yeah, I've always seen I've always seen this um argument on a regular basis about teaching is how you demonstrate and how you push across the ideas. And sometimes you can give a kid like 50 books on a subject and if they just don't 
get the practical application or they don't see how it relates to the bigger world out there. They just it, they find it very, very difficult to to kind of make those things fit in their brain so they kind of understand it. Um, so when you're saying things like you were using kind of like Legos to help, was it a kid? Did, did you, do you approach teaching in kind of like quite a practical manner then? Because you mentioned that you do obviously science and then you've got the engineering side of things. So it sounds to me like there's type of person to say, okay, we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with inelastic and elastic collisions. Let's, you know, let's show you actually, let's get the Legos out. Let's build ourselves a couple of cars and let's show you how it kind of works kind of thing. Um, there's absolutely some of that to, to my mm-hmm. work as a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you or, or listeners are familiar with um, Carl Sagan's Cosmos um, from the, well, it came out about 1980, and then uh, subsequent uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson Cosmos in recent years. And I was super into the idea of the connections between knowledge. Um, especially, especially in college where I took a, I had a liberal studies, uh, curriculum where it was just a whole little bit of this, little bit of that. And I I was really interested in the connections between all these things. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of the, the entertainment that I was pursuing was watching documentaries and then reading books that were related to all these topics that I was only getting pieces of. Yeah. Uh, during my formal education. Then as a teacher, yeah, it's true. Sometimes it is getting out the real, um, you know, the hands-on materials and observing these things and finding um, real and visual practical experiences that connect to the knowledge. But some of it's also words and some yeah. of it's also taking those those very well chosen words and demonstrating and explaining the connections between things. And sometimes these connections are just, they're so simple and they're so clean. And yet sometimes people have just never heard them. They've just never heard how these ideas are connected. And so I try to do that a lot with my students um, in terms of also taking content uh, that is relevant to where they are in their Mm -hmm. age Mm -hmm. Uh, the kinds of things that are interesting to them, and then the things that are um, preeminent locally. So I want them to get to know their immediate world a little better and see how that connects with these bigger things. Sometimes we take for granted that, um, that students just kind of know what they should know about their surroundings and about the you know, the world that's just right outside the doors. And um, I, I find I work with a lot of immigrant students. I work with a lot of low-income students. Yeah. And we live 10 miles away from the beach, for example. Yeah. And sometimes it would be half of my students have never been to the beach. Um, just this, uh, it's difficult to imagine the kind of limits and experience that people may have had and so kind of broaching that, taking them to where they will um, go past what um, the kind of the common experiences that they should have. And then we can move into the bigger picture. How do we understand the whole world? How do we understand the universe and how all of this fits together? So that kind of thinking has always interested in me. Uh, and I, I enjoy kind of 
digging into that and researching that and sharing that with students. And, and no, I'm not, I'm not jaded as a teacher. I'm very veteran at this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of it does come naturally at this point, but at the same time, um, I'm tired and, uh, I feel <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Game design is where more of my, my passion lies. And it's yeah. also, it's a calmer and quieter experience because working in a junior high, um, seven classes a day, bells ringing, persistent interruptions, um, violence, um, chaos. These are the things that we, we deal with every day. And it's, it's high stress. It's challenging and uh, gets, keeps all of your synapses firing all day long. Um, with game design, I get to, I get to chill out more. I get to go into my headspace and I get to create things that I think are adding joy to the world, bringing, bringing people experiences that, uh, that make them happy. So getting onto the game, getting onto the game design thing, you've, it says on your, your BGG bio, you're 30 years as a Dungeons and Dragons kind of dungeon master so are you in terms of that kind of thing are you approaching things from a mechanical point of view when you're writing good kind of content do you have to take into account kind of like what's what their general rules are for running a good like D campaign and then allow kind of artistic flair to kind of have like be like a layer of cheese on top of the mechanics that you're writing Everything on BGG is, of course, true, um, but it's <laughs> it's also uh, tends to be notoriously outdated. Um, so, yes, I was a Dungeons and Dragons uh, dungeon master for 30 years, um, uh-huh. but that ended about 10 years ago. So um, I I transferred a lot of the creative energy that I would put into designing campaigns and writing adventures and creating all of these imaginative worlds. And then I, I moved into tabletop board game design at all of my extra game energy um, goes into that. So I, I'm kind of retired uh, from Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I feel a bit guilty about that because I, I wanted to play D&D with my kids as they grew up. But the reality was we didn't play that many times before they kind of uh, they grew up and well they're they're adults now. Um, they do do some gaming. My son especially he's especially yeah. into um, trading card games. Um, yeah, you know they've they've become wonderful people. But we didn't do that like family D and D thing weekly yeah. or anything like that ever for any length of time. But the uh, the creativity that goes into making uh, Dungeons and Dragons adventures, uh, I definitely was into the idea that I was creating these imaginative stories that I wanted to have this tension and these experiences where um, everyone at the table felt invested in what was going on. I know it, that uh, D&D is now much more popular and common. A lot of people have you know conceptions of what happens at the table. Um, and Sometimes in the game, it can be everybody's taking it seriously and they feel like they're in the moment. And other times people are just more concerned about what snacks they're imbibing and randomly (laughs) 
telling stream of consciousness stories about the latest sci-fi or fantasy film that's somehow tangentially related to something. So like getting people back into the game is the challenge there. Yeah. And so as I was designing the D&D stuff, I would think also about how the mechanics would lend into that. Um, you know, if, if the standard rule was simply rolling one die to get across a pit or something like that, um, sometimes I would replace something that I felt like was too simple or boring with something yeah. that was maybe, maybe um, added a little lever, level of oomph, a little uh, extra um, layer of, of tension or stress where players would have to like talk it over and think and mm -hmm. and feel like they're taking a risk and then i i've moved a lot of that into my my tabletop game work in that um, i'm always looking at ways to create um, tension to make those uh, those choices um, interesting um, and to to have this sense that there's there's pressure and that there's some kind of external threat that you have to deal with while you are going through this this process of playing the game um i do like a lot of uh euros including drier euros yeah um for the for the mechanics and the feel and sometimes you kind of just want to relax and play a game um but i try to add the little little x factor which um i i feel is um maybe analogous to like the White Walkers in Game of Thrones and this idea that while you're down here farming and messing with your little economics and so on, yeah. um, death to the entire um, Seven Kingdoms is just north of the wall. And you have to think about how, do I just ignore that threat? Do I just um, go on with my life? and Or do I have to, to deal with those things um, proactively? And uh, that's another thing I like to tie into my games, this idea that you're thinking, thinking proactively about how you balance your, your level of risk, your level of like productivity or yeah. maybe recklessness. Are you going to be recklessly marching forward or are you going to be advancing relatively cautiously? So I try to make different paths valid as well with those different kinds of choices. I one thing like I play Blades in the Dark, so we've been playing a campaign for about the last it's almost two years. It'll be two years in December. Um, and one of the things I've seen across the entire kind of role playing scene is there seems to be a little bit more pressure to do more of the role playing side of things. I don't know if that's a critical role type thing. Because it is obviously kind of a bunch of actors kind of getting together and doing voices and stuff like that. Are you the type of person that would sit and do kind of like voices and things like that? Or do you, do you just let the kind of the mechanics and the setup and the background and stuff do the talking instead? Oh, I'm absolutely the kind of person who would do a bunch of voices and things. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Um, in fact, uh, theater was another thing I did back really? in the day. Not so much these days, yeah. Um, I, I was in several plays. I directed a play. and um, Anyway, my, my wife does theater still to this day. My daughter is an aspiring actress, uh, dancer, singer, triple threat. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the voices, definitely the acting, the mannerisms. Um, yeah, and I don't do it as much anymore. So if I were to do any voices now, they'd probably sound terrible. But um, for example, I would have recurring characters. I used to have recurring characters in my D&D campaigns where yeah. one of them sounded like Sean Connery. Um, and an, uh, that's a bold claim. That's a bold claim, Mr. Lottie. We have to hear like this. I, like I said, I'm not even going to try at this I, stage. No, no, of the you game. can't. No, you can't um, rock up and go. I used to do Sean Connery, <laughs> and then no. Dude. Well, especially yeah. Sean uh, I had a I had a Jack Nicholson uh, character <clears throat> in one of the D and D campaigns, but uh, you have to no. do Sean. Look. We're not it's going. been so long. <laughs> it's be, it's not. It's like, do you know what? I do voices as well. So there's like a phrase you have to get in. So like, and people do kind of like different different kinds of voices and stuff like that. Yeah. But like the UK, the the wonderful thing about the UK dialect is that you can travel like fifty miles and you can get a completely different kind of dialect. So yeah. <clears throat> like you know the Sean, everybody does Sean Connery. You know, I was just doing this the other day, you know. <laughs> I thought you, I thought I'd lost you, boy. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. You know, but then I'm Scottish, so I've got that kind of, you know, I've got that kind of slight advantage of being able to do kind of, you know, I, I knew I had to get that, um, I knew I had to get that book as far away from me as I could. Um, so you've got that kind of thing. But then if you go kind of like 60 miles south, then you're kind of getting into, well, if you head to London where you've got like your Michael Caines and things of this world, but there's, you know. But what I found about voices is it's remembering what voices you're doing. And I would love to run some kind of D&D campaign, but my issue, and I've probably alluded to this before, is I would start off with doing having like six or seven NPCs and they would all have one voice different voices and then by the end of the campaign it would all just be the same voice because i would just forget <laughs> you know what, yeah. what everybody what everybody sounds like yeah you know that would be that would kind of be the that would kind of be the issue <clears throat> i'm pleasantly yeah. surprised that i i i can obviously i guess with a teacher you have to kind of command the room so i'm guessing i guess that uh I guess the difference when you're doing a D&D campaign is you're in a room with people who actually want to be there <laughs> instead of people who are constantly kind of looking at the kind of looking at the clock. Um, that's that is it. I mean, a big part of it is uh, that's that engagement. And yeah. yes, um, being able to speak clearly the strong voice, being able to change it up and having those dynamics, it absolutely makes a difference. And it's this. Yeah. It's this X factor that I don't even think anyone tries to teach as like if you're preparing teachers, they talk about all of these ways to structure your lessons and how to uh, how to simplify content, how to work with teachers. But I don't know that there's a lot of like voice training or thinking about how you can um, manipulate language in ways that create humor or have that sense of oh this these words and how they're being spoken is pulling me in and it's it's a very real thing um my wife is doing some theater right now and um you were talking about how the voices kind of all go to the same 
yeah like general direction so she has yeah. to do voices for some of the shows she's in and um we tease her sometimes because sometimes her voices tend to drift jamaican no matter whether it's <laughs> irish or 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 southern or <laughs> as long as it doesn't go to that kind of like that um was it brad pitt um when he was meet joe black and he started doing the patois where he's talking to the lady in the hospital <laughs> and you're just like, this is the cringiest thing I've ever yeah. heard in my life. But I can See, imagine. Yeah. And by the way, I, yeah, I am one quarter Scottish. Oh, of course you are. Yes. You're and, American. Uh, you're, my, like, you're like mongrel dogs a lot well, of you. There's no- <laughs> my, my name, my name, Laurie, that comes from oh, yeah. my... My father's side, that's that's our Scottish name. And my understanding yeah. is we're Clan Gordon. Yes. So um, I don't have the kilt. I, I, I do drink scotch, though. That is that is my thing. There's, I mean, the availability of scotch now is just ridiculous. You can kind of get it anywhere. Um, and it's an amazing, it's an amazing, it's, it's one of our most wonderful exports. The... Um, Interestingly enough, in terms of the kilt, the Gordon Tartan is a rather kind of muted navy and dark green how, uh, with, I believe it's got a little yellow stripe in it. But the the dress Gordon Tartan is one, is a very, very popular um, tartan in terms of, uh, for kilt hire and stuff like that. You'll see normally a lot of kind of like people wearing the dress Gordon because it's a very bright, beautiful looking tartan um in a former life i was involved in the kilt industry <laughs> so yeah i am that stereo- i am that stereotype i was kind of going around hunting haggis and showing people how to put kilts on um nice. but that that was the thing i was working in the um the royal mile in edinburgh and you used to kind of get you used to get people coming in from you know the states and they give you a name and they'd say okay so what what's what clan am i connected to and it's like you're German, go away. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> like that. You know, there's no. That's not a Scottish name. It's not. But yeah, Laurie. I mean, absolutely. I mean, is absolutely kind of, is absolutely kind of Scottish. Um, swinging this back away yes. from that lovely glorious tangent. When it comes to the game design side of things. Because I'm getting hints of a couple of things. This is why I talk to people about the background. Because if I just talk to you about kind of like, and how did you get into board gaming? Then it's kind of like, yeah, you get one word, you get answers. This is why I'm very, very interested in people's kind of past. Because I think it very much dictates their, how they approach the kind of like game design. But with you doing the D&D and then going into the kind of the game, the game design side itself... Are you are you a mechanics first person and then a theme, or do you kind of look at like go, hmm, could we potentially do this? I wonder what would happen if we did this. What kind of what kind of thing would happen with a with a game? Because you see, you you kind of you like the kind of the worker placement kind of jam. So do you say if we're dealing with steam trains, how could we get worker placement involved in that? Or if we're dealing with potentially freezing in the depths of space, what would work with that? I guess it's kind of like the melody or the lyrics kind of a, a question. I guess this is uh, 
So you tried asking this earlier, and mm. I think I helped uh, distract you from it. We moved farther away because yes. this is one where um, I definitely don't have a clear rule about how I approach making a new game, mm -hmm. um, except that I find that it's it's kind of like layers where I start with X, which mm -hmm. may be a theme or a mechanic, and then I layer on the next layer above it, yeah. Um, which also may be a mechanic or a theme. And as I'm building, I find that the, the process, they tend to inspire each other to the point where sometimes um, I go in a thematic direction, which ends up shifting the mechanics fairly significantly. Um, and then sometimes I get a mechanical concept where that feeds into adding a new layer of story that's mm -hmm. different how I, than how I'd originally intended it. Um, and so I'm neither first. Um, and I actually don't think it's that important how the game starts, uh, yeah. whether it is thematic or mechanical. Um, but I have a tendency to have a whole bunch of different mechanics kind of floating around in the ether yeah, that I'm yeah. drawing from. Um, and I tend to build around a story. I, I am definitely the kind of person who wants, like I want to tell the story with all of the aspects there. And yeah. then I look for the mechanics that will do that. Um, as you've seen, the vast majority of my published games are worker placement games and like that's like the core mechanic in a lot of them yeah. um but they all have other kinds of mechanics that they tie into and the reality is that uh the work the body of work of mine that is published is less than 10 percent of the body of work that i have done so i build a whole lot of stuff yeah. that uh is not published will never be published but those kinds of projects, those things that I've started, mm -hmm. that I've gotten to a certain point, I may have developed different kinds of mechanics and I've told different kinds of stories yeah. um, or embraced different kinds of themes in those. And then when I move into the work that becomes, you know, a published design, it's it's drawing from all of those those things, that other side work that uh, that folks don't know about. Um, but I want games to feel easy to learn. Yeah. I want them to feel familiar enough that the innovations that I add, see, here's the great irony. You can really innovate in a way that's very subtle and people will be like, yeah, it's fun, but it's not really very innovative because <laughs> the, innovations, the innovations are seamlessly integrated. So when yeah. you really nail it, it feels familiar. Um, where things, where sometimes a game that is recognized as feeling really innovative is the reality is it just feels really different. Um, that this is a mechanic that has this kind of, um, kind of weirdness or oddities to it that you have to kind of get past your prior conceptions in order to to integrate into your your uh, kind of your mental tool shed so you'll be able to start to play it and be comfortable with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. I have a tendency to try to build games where most of the mechanics, I want them to feel comfortable with where you just say, okay, you do this, you do uh-huh. that. Oh, you know that other game yeah. that does this? It's kind of like that, just a little different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can sit down and play it without having to go deep into the rules unless you need to check some particular effect or something like that. Um, so a lot of my games can feel somewhat familiar in that regard. Um, but probably the most different, I would say, is Whistle Mountain, um, co-designed with uh, Scott Caputo. And in that one, it's because um, Scott and I, um, our design styles are like peanut butter and chocolate. And so Scott is... No, it's not (laughs) bad. Unless unless you're on a diet. And then... So Scott's very into these tile games and very into geometric spatial work. And, And I've done quite a bit of that too also, but not in stuff that's been published. And then my work was more... Um, worker placement, resource management, kind of a, that engine building kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And so we put our heads together and we built Whistle Mountain in a way where uh, you're building geometrically your worker placement board. And over time, your worker placement board shifts and changes. Um, that is a game where it definitely started uh, with Scott and I beginning with mechanics. Yeah. Um, which was this idea of building using those um, uh, geometric, um, they're not pentominoes, but they're kind of like that. So you've got your geometric building uh, of these worker placement spaces and then geometric placement of the workers to be able to um, collect resources and chain actions. But then from there, once we got the story of the external threat of the rising water, um, that shifted everything. So now it's like, now we're trying to tell the story of you are building things, but as you're building, just like in the real world, are you being reckless about your productivity to the point where the oceans are rising and are going to flood all the major cities on the planet? Um, and, you know, publisher took that and made it a little less, it isn't less an environmental story, but it has that external threat of um, there are going to be consequences as you go through this building and you're going to have this ever-changing, dynamic uh, worker placement environment to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, super proud of that work. And uh, so that one and Cryo haven't been as explosive on the market as um, Andromeda's Edge is and um, Dwellings of Eldervale have been. Um, and I'm not sure of all of the reasons for that. I feel like... Uh, in some ways, um, Andromeda's Edge and Dwellings of Eldervale are so, like they're these giant monstrous games and yet somehow they draw people um, to them. They want this, they want this massive experience and, uh, and all the bling that goes with it. I think the thing with Dwellings is Dwellings is a fa- is, is, is a fa- looks fairly daunting. But when you open the box and look at the trays, I mean, you're literally looking at um, you're literally looking at like six or eight trays for the individual kind of factions. There's then two big trays for the tokens, and then depending on what version you've got, you've then got a couple of trays of the bigger, the kind of the bigger minis. 
you've got a couple of trays for the kind of the there's two trays that have got the f- both four sets of cards in them, um, and the tokens in there. I only know this because I <laughs> I got the wooden I got you can get upgrade wooden tokens, <laughs> so I I'd recently kind of got the kind of the wooden token kind of kind of upgrade, um. But it's a big, it's a big beast. But it's not just a big beast for the sake of being kind of like a big beast. It's a, it's like a huge box. But when you open it up, it kind of there's a lot. You open it up and it says this is a quality type of product. But that's not to say that Cryo or Whistle Mountain aren't. I think that the difficulty with board games, and I see this all the time. This is you know having been doing this for like seven years now is that it can be very, very difficult to maintain a noise level on any product unless you've got somebody consciously going out and making noise on it or that's their job, that's what they do, you know. Because I know, for for instance, for Cryo, um, is it Dan Thoreau at Space Biff wrote a glorious review of Cryo. Um, they really, really liked it. But again, it's like, it's like I think for me... I get contacted by so many companies with like, this is their latest thing, this is what they're doing. And I know they've got a big catalogue and sometimes it's kind of like looking back and saying, well, we also kind of do this, this and this. And I guess that comes down to the company. But it also comes down to Kickstarter as well because Dwellings, Dwellings sold out, didn't it? I mean, Dwellings just got published and then that was it. Everybody got it. It was very, very successful. So they're... um it's on a third printing right yeah. now, Dwellings yeah. is. And uh, that third printing is shipping. And what'll happen is currently you'll see somebody will post that, oh man, I'm so excited. You know, they just got Dwellings and they got the deluxe kit and it's available yeah. at this online retailer. And then the next comment will say, sorry, they're sold out. <laughs> and I don't even have time to like go on there to see it for sale. It's gone by the time. I get those messages. Um, and that's what a lot of folks are experiencing. Um, yeah. and that's amazing and that's incredible, but uh, this is a game that was basically unavailable for about two years and it yeah. takes a long time to make this giant monster of a game. Yeah. So um, my understanding is they're turning right around and they're going to be printing more very soon. Um, but that's, yeah, it's interesting stuff uh, with it, the cult of the new it yeah. is a challenge. And so like the time I had three games that were released basically during COVID, um, like during kind of the height of the COVID epidemic. And they were, um, you know, Whistle Mountain, Cryo yeah. and Dwellings of Eldervale. Now those games were not designed at all at the same time. Um, it takes me about four years from the time I start a game to the yeah. game being published. And they were, they were staggered to where I, I'd worked on those games like a couple of years apart, but it just so happened that with how they got developed and publisher choices and so on, they all were coming out. And this was the year I was going to go to Gen Con and I was going to be there at the booth, you know, helping do the highlight, all the big stuff. And yeah, that all got scrapped. And so... Uh, Whistle Mountain didn't come out at Gen Con, and uh, I think Cry- Cryo, I think, was potentially going to be at Essen uh, the year it came out. 
And so none of those things happened. Um, dwellings of Eldervale still managed to capture a lot of people's hearts. And so what's happened is, you know, people are constantly still posting the pictures of their plays of Dwellings of Eldervale. Yeah, they, yeah, like to, yeah. they like to tell the story of I had this monster and I was, I was trying to build a dwelling in this spot and then the monster charged in and then we used this spell and they retell the story as if it's some kind of, you know, Lord of the Rings adventure, but also... <laughs> It's yeah. it's a game that is Instagrammable. So people like to they like to like pose the little stuff and show it and and uh, post those pictures. Create little reels um, with a little sound monster things as yep. well. You can put it and go. And, and the videos that Tim Chon has done and others yes. have done have really yeah, highlighted yeah, that as yeah. well. So Andromeda's Edge similarly is a product that's going to be people are going to love to see it. Even if even if it's not something to play, it's going to be something they want to see. And I'm 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 super grateful because when I started designing and this is something like 12 years ago and I I started designing with a lot of advice from Tom Jolly and other designers who'd been working on this for a long time. A lot of the emphasis in those days when I got started was try to make your game cheap. Try to encourage, uh, try to show the publisher how it's not going to cost them anything to make this thing. Yeah. Um, they can use thin old tokens and all you need is a few little cubes and try to reduce the number of components and so on. And um, so I, I took those lessons from early on and I did try to make things efficient. Um, but then more and more the, the pressure was on and pushing to make these make these products to be really um, kind of elite, um, deluxe products. And I've been extremely fortunate that the publishers who've worked on my games, um, especially Peter Vaughn with Cardboard Alchemy and previously with uh, Breaking Games. Yeah. Peter goes to great pains on every little detail of the tactile experience the visual experience and the organizational structure of the game. So when you open the box of dwellings and when you open the box of um, where people will be able to open the box of Andromeda's Edge, it's ready to play right out of the box for a game that if all of those factors weren't taken care of, it would be a 45 minute setup. And, yes, yeah. and there are plenty of games like that. And there are games that I like to play like that. I'm like, oh man, this, I have to go through and find all of these things and yeah. then I have to sort yeah. them and then I have to shuffle them. And so mechanically, I try to make the, I try to make those decisions that will make that kind of setup and tear down easy. And then Peter working with game trays takes that to the next level of how do you open the box and start playing as quickly as possible. And then when you're done, how do you how are you able to put it away as quickly as possible? I think that leads a lot to the joy of playing the game because you're more willing to pull something off the shelf when you feel like it's not going to be so much work. And then that game gets played more than than the other game that might might be more of a beast uh, to prepare. Is there is there an argument to make a smaller Redux version of Dwellings of Eldervale that kind of doesn't have 
that doesn't have as much kind of size-wise that allows people to experience the game that you that you designed, or is it I a case of the yeah. size of it? The size of it is part of you know it. It has to be on the table. It has to have this presence. That's part of the entire charm of the game. I definitely think there's an argument to be made for both. Um, uh. I could imagine. Uh, so I'm sure you're familiar with Clans of Caledonia. Yes. Um, Clans of Caledonia brilliantly fits into this small box, and it's a it's a huge game. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. In a lot of ways, and I've always admired that kind of efficiency in a product, and it definitely um, would take up less space. But you would there would be a sacrifice there. Mm-hmm. There would mm-hmm. be a sacrifice in that and that um, that smoothness of the experience um, that, that could affect how people feel about it too. Um, also, the regular version of Dwellings is selling for like 65 to $70 American dollars. Yeah, and yeah. to me, that seems really cheap. Um, I've paid lo- more than that for a lot of games that were smaller. Um, yeah. right. I mean, there's a lot of games now that the regular versions are retailing for 80, 90, a hundred dollars. Um, so I don't know that they, you would definitely have a smaller box for shipping. Um, it'd be more convenient <coughs> on your shelf, Yeah. but, um, currently it sounds like there are people still getting a lot of bang for their buck, with just the base game. Mm-hmm. 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 There's some frustration because part of the box is empty if you don't have the miniatures. Um, and then sometimes that means people are like, well, what do I do with this empty space? And other people yeah. are like, yes, there's empty space. I'm going to go buy the miniatures. Uh, yeah, I can go and put the, I can get the minotaur and everything like that that's kind of in there. Um, yeah, it's a, it is, it has, it certainly has. I know that it's um, Mike Delisio from the Dice Tower. He absolutely loves um, dwellings. Um but moving on to Andromeda's Edge, because it's kind of I guess is is it gonna have a is it gonna have a bit of a special place in your heart because you are designing and developing the game with your son. Absolutely yes, um, but also the reality is is uh, that my family and my kids have been part of my design work the whole way. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they either had to put up with the fact that the playtesting is going on, you know, on the dining room table, um, <laughs> or they were potential victims to playtests. And um, they've playtested games also that never worked um, for me. So this idea of, of working with my son comes very naturally in that um, my son is, is he's a good supporter and a good helper, and he's also one of my best critics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Um, I'm fortunate that that my son and a lot of the folks that I um, have playtested with and game with, um, they do not care about my feelings at all when it comes to criticizing my work. Mm-hmm. And that's helped me build that tough skin and help make my work better because they they can see problems. They can see those problems quickly and they don't necessarily have the solutions for them right away, but that that kind of support is vital. Now, working with my son is great because um, we 
we have close contact. He's living here at home right now. Mm -hmm. And we are weekly digging into um, to new games that we've never played before. Yeah. To continue to like expand our experience. Um, and sometimes these are really enlightening. Sometimes we're like, wow, that game is really cool and really interesting. And sometimes we're like, wow, I can't believe so many people like this. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's sometimes it's uh, reinforcing um, and sometimes it's enlightening, um, but it's also good to just kind of be aware of where the market is. Yeah. Um, so my son is is really great at taking like he can look at a hundred cards and go through those hundred cards and look at which ones are better or unbalanced mm -hmm. and things like that. He has that, uh, he has that, uh, magic, the gathering, um, you know, trading card experience where he's, he's good at looking at lots of different mechanics yeah. and how they, how they connect. So sometimes he can find, you know, those broken combos or those things that may seem out of balance. Um, Whereas I'm more of a big picture, like how do all of these these pieces fit together? And now let's go from here to develop these factions or develop these cards and so on. And so he's been able to take that work and um, and riff on it. So, for example, with um, Andromeda's Edge, I think we wound up with something like it's 18 different factions, I think, by the time we were done which have pretty significant individual player powers. Yeah. Um, and coming up with all of those and having those be balanced and fair and fun, that was, having my son side by side on that was vital because we would come up with an idea, we'd throw it down on the table, we'd test it out right away and go, nope, that's <laughs> not going to work. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's change that. So... It is. It's going to have a special place in my heart. We have two other projects that haven't been announced yet formally anywhere um, that we are working on together as well. It's it's a big beast, though. I mean, again, it's another, it's a kind of a dwellings size kind of table table to hogger. When you say it's already set up on the table, does that mean that you're kind of like, you got to sit eating dinner like, like, with a plate in your hand because Andromeda's Edge is kind of set, set out in front of you. Um, oh, yeah, we're kind of sitting in front of the TV <laughs> and watch a show together eating dinner. Um, we all have kind of complicated lives. Yeah, so yeah. it's uh, people are in and out. Uh, you know, it's. Yeah, the whole sit sit around the table together thing. We're more probably more likely to sit around and play a board game than we are to have the traditional family dinner. How much more complicated is Andromeda's Edge over dwellings? Because I've heard people saying, well, if you love dwellings, then and you're wanting kind of like the space theme, then Andromeda's Edge is perfect for you. But how how different is it? Are the two how how different is this just like dwellings in space, or is there is there enough kind of differences in it so that people could will appreciate the kind of the changes that have been or the differences between the two games? Well, it's twenty three percent more complicated, and it is 
<laughs> You've got uh, that on a spreadsheet, haven't you? You've done a calculation and then it's twenty three percent work off. I, I barely even make spreadsheets for, for my actual games. Um so much of that is heuristics yeah. um and and trial and error. But um Andromeda is definitely more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um I think in some ways it is more sophisticated. Um in some ways dwellings is more elegant. Um and I say that and sometimes people laugh because they're like, dwellings is elegant. Yeah, right. Um, by what scale? So um, they both, uh, both dwellings and, and Andromeda's Edge have the same kind of, um, kind of umbrella mechanics and mm-hmm. that they are worker placement. The worker placement does occur on a hexagonal board, that mm-hmm. there's this spatial aspect to it. Uh, they both have battle as as part of their their function and they both involve an area control where you are building things mm-hmm. um, andromeda takes a lot of the things that people wanted in dwellings and brings them in oh, right. um, okay. so there's a lot more sophistication to kind of the layers of how battle can work um, so uh, dwellings battle is um Sorry about that. Dwellings battle is um, magical and to some a little bit frustrating because it's resolved so quickly. Yes. Um, it's that helps the game. Not you don't spend all your time in a quagmire of battle. Um, we've all played those games where you get into the space battle and then you 20 minutes later, you finally resolved it. And the resolution was nothing happened um, in yeah. in dwellings. There's a major there's generally a major shift. There was a winner and a loser and it was over like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Andromeda adds more layers to that. There's a lot more kinds of cards that you can be played. There's a diplomacy um, phase in battle and there's a lot of ways to kind of trick uh, your opponents or lure your opponents into situations. Um, And then it does also affect board presence as you go through all of that. There's also uh, built-in, there's more mitigation in uh, more choice of risk in how you approach battle. Um, there's more complications or more sophistication in the tracks. Um, yeah. There are tracks that are differently themed that offer different kinds of rewards along with periodic scoring that occurs throughout the game. Um yeah, there's, a, there's just a lot more meat on the bones in Andromeda. And for some folks, that will not be ideal for them. For some folks, Dwellings is more their game. Um, dwellings is probably where more people um, who, are play, who play lighter games, they'd be drawn more to Dwellings. And players who play more heavy games, um, which a lot of those tend to be more sci-fi, um, I think will be drawn more to the sophistications in Andromeda's Edge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's persistent threads on BGG about Andromeda's Edge versus Dwellings of Elderville. Which one's right for me? And should you should you should yeah. you have both? Yeah. And as a designer, yes. that's great. I am <laughs> yeah. glad that people are deciding whether they should have one of my games or the other game or both. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, you must be crying over that. <laughs> I yeah. I don't. I want people to have that choice. And I know that people are going to be drawn to different ones. And it also may be that people are going to be more in the mood for one or the other at different times. 
Um, I, a lot of the efforts in Andromeda were also to make the game that I wanted to. And I want, I want those layers. I want that complexity. And over time, I've become a player who plays heavier games. I play more sophisticated games. Um, but a big core part of what I wanted in Andromeda's Edge also is there, which is it has an insane level of engine building, like an engine building where when you pull off the big engine building move in Andromeda, you might do 17 actions That's on a single turn. Um, and, and it, it, it scales up very gradually and slowly and it can turn into something just massive. Um, I've always admired, um, games like the, you know, uh, Carl Chuddock games and, um, uh, Tom Lehman, uh, games and various games where you're building tableaus and getting to use them. And so many of these games, oh, I think of, uh, Lahav, uh, is a great example. It's like, you build the engine, but you never got to use it, is how I feel when I play that. I was going to say um, Steampunk Rally, because Steampunk yeah. Rally is you are building the engine, and then you're basically, mm-hmm. you can end up once, you know, as you're getting round. Yes, winning the race is things, but sitting there with like a, a thing that's got 22 cards on it, and then just going right, I put steam here, fire here, electricity here, and I get this, 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 this. Yeah. And I'm moving kind of like three spaces. But it's not the fact you're moving three spaces. It's the fact you're literally doing like a, a kind of a Zach Galifianakis beautiful mind <laughs> kind of situation where you're kind of like pointing everything out. And then you're just going, yeah, okay. And I didn't move that far, but who cares? It was a beautiful <laughs> moment and I love it so much kind of thing. But yeah, I, I really yeah. like kind of the engine building kind of side of things is I can't, I don't know. So I think sometimes it works really, really well. And then I think other times um, you've really got to balance everything out so that it doesn't end up with like a broken, a broken game where somebody's just continually kind of getting one thing after another. Though the other game I played that's got engine, well, seems to have a a little bit of engine building in it is Expeditions, uh, Jamie Stegmaier's latest one. And there's kind of like little okay you. You, you do this, you put this here, you move the card across and stuff like that, and then you're able to play this card, which allows you to play this card. And I kind of like that. It's not like a huge amount of steps, but I, I, yeah, as I get as I get older, I do appreciate a good kind of engine builder. And for me, I like machines. Yeah. I like, I like mechanics. I like mm-hmm. thinking about how these things work together. And um, a good engine builder... Um, it gives you opportunity to feel like you created something that no one's ever created before. And the reality is with, there are hundreds, there's, oh, I don't know how many it is now. It's, it's like 150 different modules in Andromeda's Edge wow. uh, in four different categories. And players are going to be able to piece these together in so many different ways that, um, there, there may be new experiences happening every single time they're building these things. Um, and I, I have that experience also, you know, from way back building uh, Manhattan Project Energy Empire. Yeah. And um, engine building is, you know, absolutely key core part of that game. And the 
keeping it explosive while also keeping the brakes on it from it being broken. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's absolutely a vital part of it. And my feeling is I have there's a, I, I brought up Lahav because there's a lot of engine builders out there where I feel like the answer was put so many brakes on it the players never really get to use the engine yeah. or just as they're about to use the engine fully the game is over. Yeah. Um, because you don't want that that arc of productivity to be so steep that the first player who starts to get a little ahead continues ahead. Um, and so then that gets into what are the opportunity costs for each of the things that you build and are there are there mechanics that are going to be continuing to reward the leader in this? Yeah. Or is there some way for players who are behind to catch up? Yeah. So you're right. Balancing all of that is challenging, but... It's worth it to create a game where you can just piece together all of these things in really unique ways and get that joy and satisfaction of on my first turn, I got one resource. Yeah. But on my 10th turn, I got 20 resources <laughs> and these cards and I manipulated yeah. this situation and I built these new ships and I got this upgrade all on one turn. I got the moon on a stick, as they said. <laughs> That's also, it's a popular thing in the service industry over here. It's like, they want everything. They want the moon on a stick. <laughs> Basically, they want us to bring it down for them. Um, going onwards, and next in the kind of the, the development path. I mean, to touch on Andromeda's Edge. Andromeda's Edge. You can still go into GameFound and you can kind of pledge. It'll still be open for until the end of October at time of recording here. But going forward for yourself. For next projects, are you thinking about anything kind of smaller? I mean, you've you, this is something like like Andromeda's Edge sounds like a meal. Have you thought like a little kind of smaller kind of palate cleanser? Is this where you are? Are you the type of person that would do like a smaller game again, or are you kind of like well, especially with with your son involved, it's kind of like well, what's the next kind of big thing that we're going to do together? So that's a great question because I'm always thinking about smaller more efficient designs mm -hmm. and then i start building them and they don't turn out that way <laughs> it's my my design sensibilities tend to take my work to a place where it has kind of this optimum weight for me which is the weight of the games that i like to play the most yeah um i find that uh, while i enjoy a lighter game they're not the kinds of games that I play repeatedly. Um, I'll be like, yeah, that was a fun game. Now let's play something meteor. That was a fun little yeah. thing to do, but I want this, this extra level experience. Um, that said, my son and I are definitely working on a game that is lighter, smaller, um, quicker, mm -hmm. and plays in under an hour, um, yet still has a lot of um, our shared design sensibilities. That said, I don't know what will happen with that game during <laughs> development. You come um, back to you in six months and it's like, well, it's kind of like Andromeda's Edge, but it's kind of like got an extra, <laughs> you know, I said 17 kind of engine bits. This has got like 26 yeah. easily, you know, it's big. Well, and that that's what happens too is um, part of it is there's an expectation for what my work is. Yeah. Um, so my work, regardless of which 
who I'm partnering with or collaborating with, there's a certain expectation of what a Luke Laurie game is now, um, which is <laughs> which is great. Um, but if I were to somehow come out with like a a ten card mini game, I was going to um, say that you could mess with people's heads and do an eight card button, sh- eighteen card button yeah. sh- game. <laughs> just like- I I just feel like um, I'm not necessarily good at that. I I have tried lots of little things like that, and and it's possible that some of these some of these smaller designs that I've built would have been marketable products, mm-hmm. um, but they wouldn't necessarily have had the same appeal as a passion project for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, for better and worse, you know, because I do have a full time job, I tend to work on games that are going to keep me pretty busy mm-hmm. designing and and assisting in development for two to three years. Um, and that's that's a lot to chew. Yeah. Um, yeah. And teaching and working on games isn't all I do. In fact, it probably uh, I'm on my bike these days a lot more than I am uh, sitting at a table, um, which is good, which is good yeah. for me. Yeah. But it makes it makes the design work slow. Um, and I'm, I'm actually okay with that. I want it to be slow. I want it to be careful and thoughtful. Um, I don't want to get in a position where I'm just trying to crank out work to fulfill obligations and get another deal signed or something like that. Um, I'm more patient about waiting for things to be right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's easy to get jaded and it's easy to get, um, it's like reading the same sentence in English 15 times and it's still not making any kind of sense. <laughs> you, you end up having to take, take a break away from it all. Just And sometimes it's just to kind of get the the buzz and excitement back. I think that's mm-hmm. something that happens to a lot of people who are involved in the board game media is that they get to a point where they're not playing games to play and enjoy them. They're playing games to create right review whatever about them um so i i I myself i I make it like a a kind of a conscious effort to making sure that i'm playing games for fun and not taking any pictures not writing about them not mentioning them to anyone else just having my own little kind of space where i'm kind of like i'm kind of like playing playing games um Mm -hmm. which is the way it is um Thank you very, very much for your time. Um, I understand it's obviously it's very early. It's very early in the morning, and it's it's kind of like it's 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 almost dog walking time for me. Um, yeah. If people have listened along and they are interested in keeping up with what you get up to, where can they find you on the internet webs, Mister Laurie? Um, probably easiest and best is I. I lurk on BGG persistently, mm-hmm. um, and I tend to respond to uh, pretty frequently to questions and comments um, that people will make on my game. So if mm-hmm. they're, you know, posting on the forums for Andromeda's Edge, or Dwellings of Eldervale, or Cryo, or any of those, I subscribe to all those and get those updates. And I, yeah. I, I tend to answer um, unless somebody else answers before me. Uh, <laughs> then on uh, on Facebook. Um, I'm part of and um, run some of the groups that are related to my games. So okay. Um, okay. there's a Dwellings of Eldervale Facebook uh, fan page, um, Andromeda's Edge fan page, and 
There's a Manhattan Project Games page that's for all of the Manhattan Project games, but I, I run that forum too. Okay. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find on that social media. I guess it's the social media for people my age. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, you won't <laughs> find me. You're yourself. I was going to say, all right, granddad. <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't find me on, uh, I'm not on Reddit. Uh, I have an Instagram, but I don't, I don't I post just, a lot yeah. there. And Twitter's imploded, so there's no point just, over yeah, there it's anymore. Just, yeah, yeah, it's pointless, you know. So yeah, like, uh, BGG yeah. and Facebook. Yeah, it's like I'm having, I'm doing, I'm doing well enough having my own kind of midlife crisis at the moment without having some kind of millionaire having his midlife crisis all over social mm. media, kind of pretty much. Um, no, but what I'll do is I'll make sure I put um, links in the show notes so that we've got the notes to show. And if you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, then please go to the internet webs and search for We're Not Wizards and you will find us everywhere like a rash that you don't go to the doctor until it's far too late. So you'll find us on Facebook and we've got our um, our blog site, which is wearenotwizards.co.uk. You can find all the podcast stuff in your podcast catcher of choice. And if you are going to be going to your podcast catcher of choice, please consider giving us a rating or review. And if you are going to be giving us a rating or review, don't give us 10 stars because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us one star because it makes us cry. Give us something in the middle, like a five. Because it's average. Maybe just a little bit average. But the person who's not being average is rather wonderful, rather fantastic. He's maybe on the edge. <laughs> but it's a nice little edge. It's Mr. Luke Laurie. Thank you very, very much for guesting. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and I've got two more questions. The first thing, remember, there were many things, but we're not, we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Mr. Laurie? Are we? I am. I don't know about you. Oh, my goodness. I, right, I'm okay. a wizard. Right. Okay. That's just, you know, wrecking it all, you know. And it's a goodbye. So it's a goodbye from the final disappointment. Dwelling there in the background with his little hat on. It's Mr. Luke Laurie. Say goodbye, Luke. Goodbye, Luke. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe for all sixes. Make something awful. And... and and check out Andromeda's Edge because it's just like, it's big. It's a big thing. It's huge. You know? It is. It's huge. <laughs> As Billy, was it Billy Connolly used to say about Sean, was it, he was talking about Sean Connery. And uh, Sean Connery said to, says, Billy, Billy, you're a shite. You're a shite for sore eyes. And until the next time, goodbye. A wizard so is never linked. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to. Mm-hmm.